Well, this is a first for me, uh, uh, stopping the worship service in the middle of the service. This is the first time in my whole short career, I suppose. Um, and I, it just dawned on me, you know, I wanted to think, well, what does God think about our technical difficulties? And I just want to say that God has so much compassion for us, um, that God is pleased with us and is with us right in the middle of it. So let's enter in. Uh, if you were with us the last couple of weeks, you might remember that we've been looking at these encounters that Jesus has in the Gospel of John with various people along the way. In John chapter 3, we looked at his conversation with uh, Nicodemus and, and uh, the conversation about spiritual rebirth. Last week, we, we looked at the conversation with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and their conversation about living water that Jesus offers to our souls. And today we look at another amazing encounter that Jesus has, this time with a man born blind and a group of people, several different crowds of people as well. And it's about learning to see in the dark, learning to see in the dark. And so if the first week of John 3 is about how, how birth is a, it, the trauma of birth is a metaphor for spiritual transformation. Last week was about how drawing water out of a well is a metaphor for how Jesus can uh, quench our thirst, our soul's thirst. Um, today is about how being blind is a metaphor for seeing with the eyes of faith. So it's, it's a rather long reading, like the last couple of weeks, so I invite you to just take a deep breath, uh, maybe let go of uh, your distractions or whatever is going on in your mind, what you have to do later, uh, and, and just enter into the story of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Listen to the word of the Lord. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back to see, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. Then he said to him, they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. 
And the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this, is, this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you were trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for this day and this opportunity to gather here in front of your open word. 
We pray that you'll send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to blind us where we need to be blinded, so that we might be illumined by the light of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes we are tempted to want to draw a connection or to make a connection between the bad things that happen in our world and the God who we believe is in charge of this world. A woman lost her teenage son in a car accident. Night after night, she lay awake crying out, what in the world did I do wrong that God would allow this to happen to me? I remember when I was 24 years old and, and I was going through uh, chemotherapy for stage three cancer at the time and I was a, working as a youth director and I had come home from, uh, from a week of inpatient chemotherapy at City of Hope in Pasadena area where I was getting chemo morning and night for a week and then I would come back and, and hang out with the youth group and on Wednesday nights and, and teach them. And one Wednesday night after this had happened, one of the elders decided to visit our youth group. And he came to the youth group and, and in the middle of our gathering, he pulled me aside and he said, I'm so sorry about your cancer. Um, but I want you to know that of all the chemotherapy that you're, you're, you're doing, okay, that's fine. But really what you need to do is come and repent of whatever dark sin in your life uh, that has caused this. And until then, you're, you're not going to find healing. And uh, the only sin I could think about unrepented was all of the colorful words I had uh, reserved for this gentleman. Um, well-intentioned, but, but misguided, misguided. Well, the disciples in John 9, they get something wrong, too. Uh, when they see a man born blind and they assume that he has sinned, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? It was a common assumption in the day to attribute, to make those kinds of attributions because we don't like uncertainty. As human beings, it's a human thing. Uh, but the difference between Jesus and the disciples is that the disciples' orientation was past and causal. What happened in the past and what caused this to take place? But Jesus isn't concerned with the question of why. Why? Why did this happen? Why did my friend get hit by a drunk driver? Why isn't this couple able to have children on their, on their own? Why was I born with this condition? Our uncertainty wants us to try to solve the mystery by attributing a cause that will give some kind of false comfort to us. And so while the, G while the disciples and all too often us are looking back for a cause, Jesus is looking towards the future and redemption. Watch what God is going to do with this situation. And then he spits into the dirt, and he grabs some of this dirt, and he makes a paste in his hand. And I don't know if it was just a little spit, or maybe he hawked a big loogie, I, I'm not sure. But he makes some paste, and, and he puts it on this blind man's eyes. And while this man is still blind, he sends him off to a pool to wash and here is an echo to the creation account in Genesis 2, when God created life out of the dust. Uh, here is Jesus as the new creation has come. And, and then he's sent off 
where he is given his sight back and is literally uh, sent to testify about it. Now the Pharisees, the drama of this narrative has to do with the Pharisees and their response to this. They get word of this and they're very upset about it because they're already certain in their minds. Did you remember that line where it says the Jews had already agreed? They had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So now they end up finding themselves upset about this, especially that it's Jesus and especially it's on the Sabbath day. And they end up getting themselves into a massive theological pickle that they can't get out of. Uh, you might remember from your college philosophy days or, or maybe even English, um, the most basic of all logic known as the syllogism. A syllogism is a three-step argument that contains two premises and a therefore. A plus B equals C. So the most classic syllogism from ancient philosophy um, is, goes like this. All one, all humans are mortal. Two, Socrates is a human. Therefore, three, Socrates is mortal, right? Another one would be all water is wet. Two, rain is made of water. Therefore, three, rain is wet. See, very, pretty basic. Well, in the case of John 9, the, there's a relevant syllogism here in the story, and it goes like this. One, only someone sent by God can cure the blind. Only someone sent by God can cure the blind. Number two, Jesus cured a blind man. Therefore, three, Jesus was sent by God. It's pretty airtight logic, and that's the assertion of this text. So what do you do if you're a Pharisee who's already made up your mind, and you're desperate to deny that Jesus and God have anything to do with each other? Well, what do you do is you start to undermine the premises that lead to the bulletproof therefore. Right? So, and that's exactly what the Pharisees do. A confused crowd bring this healed man to the Pharisees. What do we do with this? And they begin their undermining process by once again bringing the man to Jesus himself. And since Jesus has, by their definition, broken the Sabbath, he cannot be some God-sent prophet. He's broken. You can't be on God's side and break God's law at the same time. But this claim doesn't stand up for more than a minute because, as the Pharisees knew all too well, you can't deny the premise that no one other than someone sent by God could cure a man who was born blind from birth. And now this man is fully cured and fully sighted standing right in front of them. They simply can't deny that premise. And so the Pharisees then turn to plan B, which is to deny the miracle itself. Plan B is to say there was no miracle. It was a staged miracle. It was all a setup, a fake, some kind of a conspiracy. The man had never been blind to begin with, no prior blindness, uh, no reason to connect Jesus to God. But plan B doesn't seem to work either, as it soon becomes clear that this man isn't an imposter. He's known as the town's blind beggar. They even try to take him to his parents who also affirm, yes, he was born blind. So premise two seems to be intact. Jesus cured a blind man. 
But the Pharisees still will not concede at this point. And so they fall back, they regroup, and they return again to plan A, namely calling Jesus a sinner. But again, this doesn't work any better because this time it's the healed man himself who provides the testimony. No mere sinner can have this kind of pull with God that Jesus clearly has. So frustrated, fed up, and frankly, also defeated, the Pharisees simply dispense with the man. And they go away. And some of them end up asking Jesus, surely we're not the blind ones, are we? And so the ones who claim to see are actually blind to the reality of Jesus. And the one who is blind is able to see clearly. That's why Jesus concludes the story by targeting the sin of the Pharisees. It's the sin of spiritual certitude. Now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Seeing and not seeing, sight and blindness, they're, they're mentioned in 24 of, the, of this chapter's 41 verses. And doesn't it seem that Jesus doesn't really want us to see spiritually, but he wants us to be spiritually blind? I know it sounds strange, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He wants those who don't see to see, and he wants those who see to become blind. Now, the typical religious teaching of the day was that blindness equates to sin. And that's why the disciples were confused about the man who was born blind. Who sinned? Blindness equates to sin, and sight uh, equates to the lack of sin. But Jesus inverts that to say, uh, no, that blindness links with a lack of sin, and seeing sight links with sin in this case. If someone says, we see, then sin remains. Those who are so sure that they're not spiritually blind may actually be the most blind. To say we see may actually mean that you don't really see. Why? Because it's an expression of human pride, right? A know-it-all reveals a gap in their knowledge. They reveal that they actually don't really know it all. They reveal how much they really don't understand by asserting how much they think they know and are enlightened. Rather, Jesus wants us to claim blindness as the pathway to sight. And by doing so, we reveal how much we are really illuminated by the light of Christ. One of my favorite preachers and teachers of preaching and spiritual writers is Barbara Brown Taylor. And one of her recent books is a book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And it offers a way to walk faithfully in those times when we don't know all the answers, when we can't really understand what's going on, kind of like right now in the middle of this pandemic. And it offers a way to walk faithfully in those times. And, and, uh, and she urges us to lay down our fears and our anxieties and to explore what God has to teach us in the dark. She encourages a spirituality of the nighttime. I know that I need to learn from her. This idea might be uncomfortable, 
But it's why the psalmist David can, can write, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Darkness is as light to him. Walking in the dark is a form of spiritual humility. We claim lack of knowledge. We acknowledge that there are gaps in our spiritual understanding. We are blind figuratively. The healing of the blind beggar reveals that we will receive illumination gradually. Not from our own resources, but from the one who says, I am the light of the world. So the former blind beggar confesses that he doesn't know the answers to all the questions posed to him, but he does say, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so what does that mean? It means that his experience is a crucial source of his faith formation, but he still acknowledges that there are some things he doesn't know. He knows that he sees, but he can't answer every question about Jesus. Does that give you some comfort? It does to me. In some ways, he still sees in the dark. He recognizes the unknowability and the unseen nature of God. He knows God better than the Pharisees did. But he indicates that he really does know God. When the disciples are called to follow Jesus, you know, they leave behind everything. And they believe in him and they follow him even though they don't know the way that he is going. They travel in the dark with his presence lighting the way. They don't see everything. We don't see everything. We can't see everything. As Paul says we see through a glass dimly or not at all. And this is where God calls us to the place of unknowing and unseen. God may be using the darkness to lead us to our blind spots and to help us to grow and truly see. Not saying we see the Pharisees, but instead claiming we don't see is what theologians call the, the via negativa of the Christian life. It is negative theology. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, I'm going to post a 12-minute video about negative theology on the Facebook page after this is over. Because it's an acknowledgement that God is not a finite object in the universe. Therefore, it's ultimately impossible to describe God through human words and concepts, which are ne necessarily limiting. All human language is inadequate. In speaking of God, God is beyond the limits of our understanding. There are two theological traditions that I just want to mention, introduce to you, that will be also explained a little bit more in, the, in that little video afterwards. Um, they are the apophatic and the cataphatic traditions. Cataphatic theology is positive theology that makes assertions about God. God is like this. God is like that. God is. God has come in Jesus Christ in the incarnation, that is cataphatic theology. Apophatic theology is negative theology, and, uh, and it serves as a corrective to keep cataphatic theology in check. And so the danger sometimes of cataphatic theology is that we may assert all kinds of things about God that God doesn't assert about himself. And so apophatic theology offers a corrective. God is not like that. God is not distant and removed. 
So that's an apophatic statement. Apophatic theology is the via negativa, and it keeps other theological approaches honest and suggests we don't see and cannot see. And many times we live in what Gregory of Nyssa called the darkness of incomprehensibility. And it serves a really important purpose. In our story, Jesus is inviting us to an apophatic uh, faith, a way of, of, to a wholly unknowing. There's another wonderful book, um, I think it's 4th century, it's called The Cloud of Unknowing. And it's a, it's a classic in the Christian tradition, and the author is anonymous, but it's, I would recommend it to you. A fourth century bishop and doctor of the church, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, said, said that for, for anyone concerns God, to confess our ignorance is the best knowledge. What we know is that we don't know. What we see is that we don't see. No one has, no one has seen or can see God, John 1.18. 1 Timothy 6 says God lives in unapproachable light. Both Job 11 and Romans 11 say God's ways are unsearchable and unfathomable. And so the, the scripture even leads us into the unknowable, into the unseen, into the dark. A God that we cannot fully comprehend. It is as if Jesus is calling for an apophatic spirituality. One in which we can claim that we don't know or don't see. And God is in the dark. God is in the dark. How do I know this? I know this because Jesus travels the Via Negativa on the Via Dolorosa. He gave himself to the way of denial and the way of death, nine chapters later. This past week, we remember the one-year anniversary of this, of when the novel coronavirus became a global pandemic. I think it was exactly one year ago when we went into lockdown and my family and I visited here. Um, and when we visited, it was the first Sunday of, of our virtual service. And on the one year anniversary, we enjoyed our first real technical difficulties today and pushed through. Um, but we've been walking through the dark ever since this whole year. We've been walking through a dark forest uh, I remember even um, following the general guidance and the general assumption, um, Pastor Steve saying, it's only going to be a few weeks, we'll be back into worship by the time we start in June. And, uh, and well, of course that hasn't been the case. But oftentimes it's felt like walking through the dark with a blindfold on, you trying to make your way in this world, me trying to find my way through the congregation and a new community that I can't see. But through your steadfastness, through your willingness to adapt and to say, we're, we're in this with you and we're going to go this journey together and we're going to take care of one another and love one another and we're going to adapt to a dis, an uncomfortable way of worshiping because that's what we need to do, because that's where God calls us. All of that has been like a light shining. That is the light that shines through the dark times. It is the faithfulness of the body of Christ to say, look, we, we are in the dark, but we still see Jesus with us. And so these, even these dark days of Lent are days that call us to walk in a holy darkness. To see with the eyes of faith rather than certainty. 
We're not going to be able to celebrate some great big victory. We're going to be emerging out of this. It could go on for a long time um, in various ways. But we're called to see with the eyes of faith the journey with Jesus to the cross. And all of this prepares us to live the resurrection life. As Dr. Taylor says in her book, new life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. God, help us to not be afraid of the dark. Help us to not be afraid of the, of the mystery of claiming what we do not know and what we cannot see. Free us of the arrogance of certainty and really the falseness of certainty. That we might walk in the dark but illuminated by the light of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.